This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Karen Perlman of Temple B'nai Jeshurun in Short Hills, New Jersey, where I became a bar mitzvah in 1985. Karen, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you for having me. So your chosen passage is uh, from Ruth, 1 to 18. Tell us what happens in early Ruth and why is it significant to you? Thank you for having me. I, I, I was catching up on some episodes and it's amazing how much you can learn from uh, fellow seekers. So the book of Ruth is one of my favorite stories. It is unusual and unique in the Bible in that it's sort of a short story. So it really has a beginning, a middle and an end. It's sort of a movie, right? It, and everything resolves itself. So there are no really untied ends. And actually, Ruth is really important because she is the ancestor of King David. So the rabbis actually, you know, eventually make her raise her up in the story because she is seen as sort of first pin that, that leads us to redemption, to perhaps even messianism. Right. And because King David, of course, is the uh, ancestor of the eventual Messiah. Correct. Right. So it's even thought that uh, Ruth, who is a Moabite, she's not even an Israelite. She, um, we can, we'll talk about this, but she is sort of a, an Israelite or maybe even a Jew by, by choice, maybe in thought to be the first Jew by choice, that somehow she is the ancestor of what will eventually redeem us all. Yes. And, you know, it's so interesting you point out that Ruth's a short story because Michael Oren, when he was a guest, we did a special with Michael Oren for his book of short stories. And he pointed out that the short story is a Jewish genre. And I said, yes, like the book of Jonah. And someone else said, really, it's the book of Ruth and Jonah. Exactly. So Ruth takes place um, that very early in the story. We first learn of Ruth through her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech. We don't know very much about them. It's set in the time of the judges. And it seems to be this lovely story about Naomi and Elimelech. They have two sons. Their two sons get married. And now they're a happy family of six. And then in pretty quick succession, the husband, Elimelech, dies, and the two sons also die. So now you have these three women, none of whom are related by blood, they're related by marriage, who are left to fend for themselves. And in this time, this was a time where uh, women really gained their financial security, their security in terms of food, uh, through the men in their lives. So it wasn't just good for them to find a new husband, it was actually essential for their well-being. And did they have any kids or did they only have any grandchildren? No. So there were no kids. There was sort of this early period of domestic bliss. And interestingly enough, the two sons' names mean basically death and destruction. Early on, if you are if you know, you're kind of like, oh, something bad is about to happen here because the two sons have these names that kind of give us the wink that something so good is not going to happen. Interesting. I mean, I wonder if that's a biblical short story uh, technique because Jonah, of course, means faithfulness. And Jonah, son of Amitai, is really faithfulness, son of truth which is the key to understanding that whole story is that he's the son of truth. So interesting. So we have death and destruction are die, not surprisingly. And Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law in a world that is not hospitable to single women. Correct. So then you have Naomi and then she has these two daughters-in-law, uh, Ruth and Orpah. 
And Orpha does not get a lot. We don't really know exactly what happens to her. However, Orpha's name is actually very well known because of a misspelling, which is how Oprah got her name. So what's interesting is that, as I said, Ruth becomes the ancestor of King David. So we automatically know that she is this righteous woman. And the rabbis later on basically call Orpah the ancestor of Goliath because, you know, David and Goliath, they're sort of against each other. But that, that wouldn't be textual, though. The rabbi's husband, we're Karaites. <laughs> Very good. So you have the situation and Naomi does what is the sort of seen as the most charitable thing, which is to send these two women away. And she actually says she sort of um, is able to put aside her own grief for the loss of her husband and her two sons. And she says, you know, um, you have to go back to your families, right? You have to go back and may God deal kindly with you because you have been kind to me, but you have to go back and you have to find, you have to find new husbands. You have to move on with your life. And so she's probably figuring they're better off without her. They're better off going home and finding new husbands in the place of their home. Exactly. Correct. And that she might, by the way, even be able to find a new husband, right? Wait, wait, who, uh, Naomi? Naomi, correct. Well, she has less hope for herself than she does for her daughter-in-law, because she says here in one twelve, even if I thought there was hope for me, would you wait till they grew up? Correct. So she actually even says she sort of, her whole concern, her whole focus is on these two, these two women. She said, even if I were able to be, have, to be married and become pregnant tonight, you're not going to wait around all these years for my son. 25 years. Yeah. It's time for you to go. And she really pushes them out of the nest. And Orpa follows her command uh, and says, thanks so much. I'll see you later. But Ruth is the one who says this really beautiful line that has become part of our canon, right? She says, um, she begins to cry. And Naomi says, you have to do as your sister-in-law did, right? Follow your sister-in-law, go back. And Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you, to turn back or not to follow you. Wherever you will go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. This is one of the most beautiful statements in the Bible. And this is the original biblical statement of conversion to Judaism. Right. I mean, later on, this is sort of seen as her saying, I am going to now not just be with you in our family, but I am going to live this Israelite lifestyle with you. And adopt your religion. May your God be my God. Correct. And by the way, where it says, where you will go, I will go, right? Wherever you're going to go, however we're going to live, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to adopt your religious lifestyle and adopt your God. And it seems to me that the order in which he says these things is so dispositive towards understanding the Jewish philosophy of conversion. Because the first thing she says is not, will your God be my God? That's the last thing she says. The first thing she says, I will go, will you will go. And the second thing is, your people will be my people, emphasizing the importance of Jewish peoplehood. And only third is what we would consider the traditional ritualistic religious element of the whole thing. Correct. I mean, it's so beautiful because it, it's very, it also sort of moves from the most personal and the, and the home base, the idea, right? Your people and then your God. And it's, I think, one of the reasons why those who have come to Judaism later in life and Jews by birth have connected with this because the idea of, of such a, of a connection that you would want to follow a person into their religion and, and their lifestyle. Well, you know, when, when you chose this passage, it really brought me back to a moment about five years ago when I was in Africa with one of the uh, Christian missionary doctors that we work with in Africa. And so I said to him at the end of a long day, I said, we, we've been together all day, but I haven't you 
talk about any of the missionary aspects of being a missionary, at least missionary defined as converting others. He said, oh, well, that's not the way you do it. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He says, you can only convert someone when they ask one question. I said, what's the question? He said, the question is, why do you care so much? He said, only when that personal connection is made, only when they want to know, why do you care so much? What inspires you? Only then is the door open. You're not going to actually succeed in converting anybody, but only then is the door open once the personal element is established. I think that's what it's saying here. It's wherever you will go, I will go. Naomi had established that. You know, she wanted to be like Naomi. She wanted to be with Naomi. And only after that did she consider peoplehood. And only after that does she consider religion. Absolutely. She saw there are even, even though I know you're a Karaite, there are even the rabbis who say that, you know, Naomi was sort of her conversion teacher. And that, you know, Naomi was the one who said, this is what it means to be a, a Jewish woman. This is what it means to, to be an Israelite. And it actually means rejecting some things for the sake of walking in this path. Right. But I think this actually reinforces my charism, which is that from the text, I don't know, it doesn't say she was her conversion teacher, but it, it certainly says that Naomi was her inspiration. And that is what a conversion teacher is. The conversion teacher is the person who inspires you. And then the convert says, like this doctor told me in Africa, it's like, well, what made you, you? And that opens the door. And that's apparently what Naomi did because Ruth was so inspired by this love she has for her mother-in-law and by the presumed character of her mother-in-law, which we see throughout the story. Not surprising she was inspired by it, that she becomes the first convert to Judaism. And it's positive, right? This is all phrased in the positive. So it doesn't say, I won't go back. I won't do that. I won't pray to my God. But it says it's this inspiring kind of, it's set in the positive, which is, by the way, what we want Judaism to be, a positive, joyful experience, right? Where you go, I will go. And I actually had the opportunity, funny enough, uh, to be on a Beit Dean this morning and to welcome a new member of our community And she actually said that part of what made her want to be Jewish was the positive, right? It wasn't sin. It wasn't all the negative. It's actually, this is like, you know, Shabbat and holidays and family and community. It was the idea that your life could be filled with so much meaning and purpose and joy. And that's what it meant to be Jewish. So I I really think that's actually what Naomi is saying, even though we don't hear those words. This is what your life could be like. Exactly. And in, in Deuteronomy, at several points, we are commanded to be joyous. Yes. It's not a suggestion. It's not something that happens as a result of something else. It's a commandment. You shall be joyous. And all throughout the Jewish tradition, this commandment is established. Like you have to be joyous. You should be joyous. It's not a question. It's an obligation as commanding as any other obligation is to be joyous. And here we see one manifestation. Why it's what welcomes people in. And even that we sometimes put joy above, we sort of help manage the challenges we experience by finding the places of joy, right? Going to a wedding and, and dancing with a couple, holding a new baby. When you have so much joy, of course, you're going to hold the other things, but you actually need to make space for the joy. And that's right. You need to be commanded to, because even when things seem quite sorrowful, there's usually, not always, but there's usually joy to be found. And we have Shabbat every week, which is joy. And you have to break mourning for Shabbat, right? Maybe that's a manifestation of this, is that you need the Shabbat joy, even when you're mourning. And I think that this kind of a text because it has this story aspect, you actually get brought in so much the literary aspect of suddenly, you know, in the first eight, 12 verses, that so much happens. And then you really care about the characters in a way that you want to know what happens to Naomi and to, and to Ruth and how it comes to be that, that she comes to be the ancestor of King David. And I think it's such an interesting point you raised that no one is selling against anything, that she's not saying your people were idolaters or there's, there's none of that. It's all joy and all beauty because... I think this gets to one of the points this missionary doctor was basically telling me about. You don't convince anybody, perhaps of anything, but certainly in a missionary context with arguments. You have to do it through example and through joy. 
and the idea that later on, you know, the rabbis want to sort of put those things in. But when you read it, when you really just read it, you can imagine, you know, for Ruth to say this, she must have observed Naomi and and seen. And by the way, you know, when, when I teach this sometimes, you know, you can make the joke about mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law and that sometimes, or perhaps many times, there is animosity, friction, right? But this is an example of these two women who found a connection between each other so much that she could have gone back to her family. I mean, even if Ruth had been in the family a few years, that she would choose to go with this family, this chosen family instead of her family of origin says so much about their relationship. Absolutely. And what a long lasting, I mean, eternally lasting consequences this relationship has. And uh, I mean, there's just so much in that statement. I mean, the importance of Jewish peoplehood and the importance of unity, particularly in these days, but I don't like saying these days because it's always been the case where as Jews, we so often find and emphasize our differences with other Jews. And we'll say, uh, I don't want to be like them because of something. It's like, no, no, no. It's, it's all about Jewish unity. I mean, your people will be my people, not your sect or your denomination will be my denomination. Your people will be my people. Right. And, and the Hebrew, the, the idea of Am, the idea of, you know, whether you think about Am Yisrael Chai, the idea of uh, peoplehood means that you're joining with people you probably don't, and you don't agree with all of them right? You're joining a people, but for the sake of something bigger, for the sake of the nation, you're coming in. You have to imagine the conversations that would have led to this moment for Ruth to have come in as a Moabite, as an outsider. And the, you know, you really learn a lot about Naomi from this because she must have had such a warm, compassionate. I mean, it reminds me of the best rabbis and and Rebbitsons that I've known who, you know, when you walk into their home, you you felt so welcome. There wasn't judging. There wasn't, you do this and we do this, or you're like X and I'm like Y, but it was really just welcome. You're one of us, you're here and and we welcome you. And the sense of hospitality, right? Naomi was sort of this ultimate teacher of hospitality so much that uh, she that she brought Ruth in. And I would say that, that that's the job of, of rabbis and of all different folks to say, to come in, right? The tent is big enough you know, the chicken soup's on the stove and we're glad you're here. Yeah, it really also just shows how we welcome converts because she's a full member of the, I mean, Maimonides put this best in the, but he was probably inspired by this because Maimonides in the letter from Obidiah, the convert said, am I allowed to say the God of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And Maimonides said, it's not a matter whether you're allowed to, you're required to, because there's now no difference between you and me, it's all us. So you're required to say the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. My mother converted to Judaism. And so I feel this really deeply, which is that I sometimes even forget it, right? It's been a very long time. And so, but she'll sometimes say things about, you know, before and, and the idea that once someone has accepted the commandments, right? The idea of the, the we call it the yoke of the commandments, right? You, you accept them, you join the Jewish people and you begin to live a Jewish life. You're like all of us. By the way, this is actually what serves to kind of deplete Jewish unity. It's like, well, you're not really Jewish enough. And you're, you know, once you're in, you're in. And thank God, because we need every every Jew we can get to help make our world a better place and to also strengthen um, Yisrael. Exactly. And if someone ever asks, like, well, how legitimate is the convert? The answer is legitimate enough to be the ancestress of King David and the Messiah. Correct. Yes. Don't know how you beat that. Right. And you have to imagine that the writer of this, a biblical writer, you know, in writing the story and, and however it came to be, you know, at the end, it's like the cherry on top, right? All of these generations. And then we have King David and the idea that you can't dispute King David. 
You might want to dispute Ruth, but King David is about as legitimate as you get. And the idea that his lineage started with this Moabite woman who left behind, you know, was sort of a lefaka, right? Left, left everything behind to embrace a new life and did so uh, to really change the Jewish people. Right. And, you know, what halakhic strictures did Naomi impose upon Ruth to convert? None. When Ruth says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, she didn't say, well, let's talk about kosher. She embraces her. Many years ago, Rabbi Eric Yaffe, who was then the head of the UHC, had his sermon at the biennial. He talked about that the non-Jewish parents who raised Jewish children, he called them superheroes. Because he said, you know, maybe dad's off doing something, but the mom, perhaps, who's not Jewish, is the one driving to religious school, ordering the yarmulkes for the bar mitzvah, making latkes, and that when we embrace, and this was right around when, um, you know, a lot of things around interfaith marriage were very hot in the reform movement. But he said, you know, so many of these people end up converting because we make it an open environment, right? If we say, you're welcome, but we don't really like you, but we just say, you're welcome, come on in, here you are. And that so many of these people ended up converting because of the open welcoming, hospitable environment that these synagogues created. I wonder what the sociology on that is. I wonder how many parents, or probably parents, but spouses of intermarried couples end up converting. I I mean, I wonder what the numbers actually are. I would suspect, I just know from the percent of children and grandchildren of intermarried couples who identify as Jewish, it's not very high. Yeah, I read years ago, and I'm not going to, I shouldn't be saying this in the air, but I read, so I read years ago, this is totally unsourced, that it was like 10% of grandchildren, this was unsourced, but 10% of grandchildren of intermarried couples identify as Jewish, which is not very good, if that's even directionally accurate. Sure, but I do wonder what, you know, and I think as a rabbi who, uh, you know, works with all different kinds of families, that if that's a product of the kind of community that existed in that time. And I, I think I feel really proud at least to work in a synagogue where all kinds of families are welcome and we make it a joyous open place. And then you, you hope that that kind of environment really engenders Jewish continuity and Jewish joy. I know, of course, when a couple joins a synagogue, they've self-selected to be more likely to be in that 10% than somebody who didn't join a synagogue. But I think this actually is the answer to the whole intermarriage question. It's intermarriage is prohibited in Deuteronomy pretty clearly, and for reasons that we now know are sociological. But also, conversion can be pretty opening and pretty welcoming and pretty easy. There's no need to say no three times and to make someone go through literally years of process and years of classes. What should an interfaith couple do? Well, in order to get married Jewishly, one person has to convert, but conversion can be a lovely process. It can be an inviting process. It can be, everyone should be welcoming and loving, just like Naomi was, just like Maimonides was. I mean, these difficulties are relatively recent and don't seem to be rooted in the original biblical text of conversion. I don't think so. And I think they also perhaps come from some kind of internalized fear about the stranger, about the other, about, and Ruth is this text, right? I mean, the idea that it is the right thing to do. It also makes the Jewish people better, right? You know, Ruth is the, she's the one we can look to and say that there is great power in those who come into the community who are different. And it actually shows a lot about the community if they're able to welcome and accept someone who's different and make it an open place. And so I agree with you. I mean, I think, I think, I think it's actually a very complicated thing, but I don't think it has to be. I think that welcoming is not hard. And we've made it hard by, you know, the three times and which denomination and, and all of those things. But we really can make it easy if we if we start with love and we start with this, right? Naomi eventually, by the way, it says at the, the end of the passage I picked, when Naomi saw how determined she was, she ceased to argue with her. 
And Naomi was able to recognize in her daughter-in-law this passion and this fire. And she said, I I can't argue with you anymore. I I just have to open up my arms and welcome you in because now we're family and we are about to go on this this journey together. And the journey is going to end in a a redemptive and miraculous place. Absolutely. Yes. And I I imagine that much of the conversion process today that deviates from the spirit of this derives from the fact that if you're a Jew living in an environment of persecution, that would be a rational response to persecutors who would want to say, they're trying to get our children, let's go get them, which was the case for much of Jewish history, but not today, thank God, and not, and not in Ruth and Naomi. And I think there's also something about boundaries, which is, you know, we want to bring people in and we also want to, we don't want it to be so hard. We also don't want it to be so easy that, you know, we, we kind of can't keep a certain kind of um, the idea of what does it mean to be part of the Jewish people? We have to agree on some things. And by the way, we disagree on a lot, but we can say, here are the things we agree on. And if you want to come in, we want to make it possible for you and open for you. And, but I, I do think we perhaps have unnecessarily complicated it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there needs to be some standards, but that's the challenge and that's the tension. You know, what, what are the some standards that's not too many? And thank God we have the Bible to guide us. And maybe all the guidance we need is right here. Maybe this is basically the constitution that we can fill in with laws, but the constitution of conversion is probably right here. And if you think about it, if we just started with this, right? If someone said, you know, Ruth has this very innocent, she also isn't bogged down by all the rules, right? She says, don't tell me to turn away because this is the path I want to be on. She's determined, but she also, there's a, there's a simplicity to it, right? It doesn't say, you know, what about cheeseburgers? What about Shabbat? What about this? What about that? Right? Just where you're going to go, I'm going to go. And that means to all the places that we're, we're going to go. And it, it's very future looking, right? It's very hopeful. And actually it's very Jewish, right? It's very, where you go, I will go. And we're in this together. And your God will be my God. And, and we're all member of the same people. And Let's go from there. It's actually one of the reasons why uh, sometimes interfaith couples or folks who have converted will use this even in their wedding vows, right? The idea that this section will become part of a wedding ceremony. And by the way, whether or not you're of the same religion, even if you're of different kinds in the same religion, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. There there is an intimacy to that. An intimacy and a comprehensiveness, like, what else is there? I'm going to go where you're going to go. I'm going to stay where you stay. Your people with my people, your God will be my God. I mean, I think we're good. What more is there? Exactly. Well, Karen, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about this uh, magnificent passage, which I'm so glad you brought up. It really helps us to conceive of what it means to be a Jew and what it means to welcome other Jews, because I think it's the constitution of those issues and conversion, of course. So the concluding question always goes from um, the uh, sacred text of the Bible to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says in the book, um, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, that everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in your now 10 years as a rabbi, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Okay, I'll say two things. I didn't learn them from being a rabbi, but I did learn them, I think, before I was a rabbi. But my father used to say this when we were growing up, which is a teaching of Zig Ziglar, who's like a psychologist and a motivational speaker, and is that you can have everything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want out of life. And that to be a human being is to 
care about other people and to care about what makes them feel whole and to help them do that. It's no surprise that I'm a rabbi. I have a brother who also is a Jewish professional, a musician and an educator. My mom's a teacher. My dad was in the military, a lawyer in the military. So we really, I think embodied that. And I think about that a lot, that when you help other people get what they want and what they need, there is a sense of fulfillment that you get out of life that is better than better than anything you can earn. Beautiful. Now, isn't Natan in the Hebrew as well as the English translation of palindrome where it reads the same backwards and forwards? Yes. To give, right? The word to give. So giving is receiving. It's all the same idea. It literally goes around and around, just like you're saying. It does. And also that it can really make you feel fulfilled, right? I mean, I have a job where a lot of my job is just about other people and what they're going through and the ability to feel other people's pain and to feel their joy and to be with them in all these moments of their lives. It's really fulfilling. It's a miraculous kind of world, kind of life to live that way. Uh, The second piece of advice or something that I live by is the idea that um, many, maybe even most decisions in life are a choice between love and fear. And when you choose love over fear, you almost always make the best choice. And when, you, when you're when you struggling between two things, even if they seem kind of like they're the same, there's usually one that's coming out of fear and one that's coming out of love. And choosing a life that is rooted in love is one that also ends up being very meaningful and also creates that joy that we were talking about before. Well, fascinating. You know, I think the most frequently uttered commandment in the Torah, I believe 80 times is do not fear, which I think reflects its prevalence. Because if it wasn't happening a lot, you wouldn't have needed 80 condemnations of it. Even by the way, during the high holy days, the idea that the, the word for fear is also the word for revere, the awe. So you can you know have that fear of God, but it's also a, an awe, right? An awesomeness or an awfulness. But that idea that that fear can actually be rooted not in, I'm afraid I have to retreat, but you're standing before the mountain, the waterfall, the ark, your God, whatever you believe. And that not being rooted in fear allows us to just live a much more I think healthy and, and happy life. Well, absolutely. You know, one of the um, first guests on The Rabbi's Husband was uh, David Fox, who was one of the top uh, M&A lawyers in the world. I told him on the podcast, but I remember him telling me years ago, he said, you can go through life trusting people or not. The fact is you're going to get screwed the same amount of times. So just go through life trusting people. And by the way, it also, it changes the way you see the world, right? If you assume the best in other people, right? If you assume that the person who cuts you off in traffic is, you know, I see your, your background, you're going to save someone's life or is in an emergency, or by the way, just could use, you know, cut them a break. It's better than going through life being like, everyone is cutting me off. Everyone is personally interested in my angst. Right. If you have to guess one or the other, I guess to go to what David was saying, let's say it's 50-50. Half the times they're cutting off because they're a jerk. Half the time they're cutting off because the guy's driving his wife to the hospital to give birth or he's going to, like in the, going to save a life without solid. It's 50-50. So you're going to be wrong half the time. You might as well have a good attitude about it. Have a good attitude and, and not let it bother you, right? I mean, there's plenty of in the world to be bothered by, but to be able to walk around with a sense of hopefulness, I mean, that's about as Jewish as it gets, right? That Hatikva is our national anthem. Every national anthem is, is in war and in uh, strife. And this is about hope. And that hope, I think, is what we need more than ever in this world. Absolutely. Well, Karen, thank you for such a fascinating conversation, uh, as always, taking off from this incredible biblical story and going in so many directions. Thank you so much for having me. I really, uh, I really have loved our conversation. It was great. Thank you. 